persecution, significant persecution. We read about it, but very few of us have ever experienced it. We can hardly even point to anybody that we know that has experienced it. If someone attacks us in our culture, we, we want to find somebody to make it right, fix it. Can't treat me that way. Today we'll be looking at two men who experienced significant persecution. But I'd like to alert you to some persecution right now that's going on in northeast India. We, we all know about the tragic loss of lives in Hawaii this past week or so. The media let us know. But they don't tell us about what's going on in northeast India or in many other countries of the world where followers of Jesus are being significantly persecuted. One of our ministry partners uh, serves in northeast India. Northeast India Baptist Bible College. And they recently sent us some information, ways we could be praying for them. They did not mention the persecution. I'm not sure why. It, it may be because the Northeast India is a big piece of property <laughs> and it's not affecting them. Or it may be that because of the government, they're not able to tell us. I don't know. But I do have a report here from H.C. Stevens, who is a ministry leader in northeast India, and he's come to the United States to let the church know about what God is uh, having them endure. This is Pastor Stephen, and this is my wasting boy. We are thankful and indebted to Leg and Cam for a partnership of 10 years plus. We are here in the States. Uh, representing the suffering churches in India. I serve in Manipur, India, the epicenter of the civil war or ethnic cleansing that started since May the 3rd, and this is the 93rd or 93 days, and the conflict and the crisis overwhelming. Over the period of these 92 days, more than 121 people were dead, and then 197 churches are burned down, and 7,000 homes were totally raised to ground or burned down, and also 359 churches with buildings and property were also burned down, and over 41,000 people were displaced in different places. And in my hometown, there are more than 100 relief centers they occupied most of the school buildings. And then at this juncture, everything is on hold. No school, no office, no work. And then the battle keeps ringing, and our place, Manipur, is burning, boiling. People were killed every day. And the government remained a silent spectator. And if you were asking me, what is the cause behind this? Did, did you catch that? The government is looking the other way. Not taking any steps to suppress or control this persecution. The writer of the Hebrews 
tells us that we ought to remember those who are being persecuted and to pray for them. I like the way the way the New King James says it. Think of them as if you were chained to them that are being mistreated. Let's stop right now and pray for those brothers and sisters. Oh, our God, we do not know what to do. We don't have the ability to change what is going on in Northeast India today, but our eyes are on you. As the God of all mercy, would you wrap your arms of mercy around them and strengthen them, give them unusual boldness and courage. I pray for the children who have lost everything, maybe even a mom or a dad. And help believers there to be prepared when those watching them want to know why they have hope in such a desperate circumstance. Lord, help them to be gentle. The people that are mistreating them are anything but gentle. Help them to be gentle. And help them to respect that government that is ignoring their plight. And most of all, will your name be exalted in the midst of this chaos. In the name of our Savior, amen. We're going to be looking in Acts chapter 12 at two men who were incarcerated as Herod sought to persecute the church to enhance his favor with the Jews. As, As I read the passage, these are the people that you're going to meet. Acts chapter 12. About this time, Herod the king laid a violent hand on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread and When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. And when they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, 
Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and for all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Many were there gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter's standing at the gate. They said to her, get out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, well, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened and saw him, they were amazed. But motioning to them to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having, been, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten with worms, and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. In the context of the book of Luke, we're at a hinge point up until now, uh, the, the gospel had been spreading um, unintentionally. What I mean by that is they didn't have a plan to go from Jerusalem to this city or to this region. What happened was somebody would come from that region to Jerusalem, learn about the resurrection, put their faith in Christ, and go back and talk about it. Or, with persecution... The people that lived in Jerusalem, some of them fled to other cities. And when they got there, they talked about the gospel. So there wasn't a, a plan. They just talked about it wherever they were. But next week, we're going to see Luke make a transition where he begins to focus on the intentional spearheading of the apostle Paul to take the gospel to other cities. Let me explain a couple things about the politics of that day that'll help us see what's going on in this passage. When, when I was a sophomore in high school, I, um, I ended up in a history class that I did not want to take. 
I didn't sign up for it. It was elective. I didn't have to have it. And, and there was only one other sophomore in the class. Everybody else was seniors. But that teacher was amazing. I learned a lot. One of the things I learned was about Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Now, since you were not in that class with me, let me share some things with you that I remember about Pax Romana. There was a period of about, oh, about 250 years when uh, Rome controlled this whole region surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. In 250 years, to, to give you a, a, a way to think about that, that's about how long our country has been in existence independent from England. That's a pretty long time. And um, during this time, uh, one of the reasons that they were able to have that kind of peace um, was they had a well-trained and disciplined military. A couple weeks ago, we met the centurion. He would have been over 100 soldiers. And, be, and, and then they would have uh, cohorts of, of 1,000 soldiers. And then those cohorts would be joined together to be a legion of six or 8,000 soldiers. And they were placed strategically around that Roman Empire. Secondly, they had an empire-wide road system. Now, roads were important because with those armies, they, they needed to be moved from area to area, and then there needed to be supplies for them. And so the roads really helped that happen. Now, uh, we have in our country uh, a road system. Some of you traveled on our interstate system this morning. President Eisenhower was the one that envisioned this and uh, in 1956, they started building these roads. And he built them for two reasons. One, so that the major metropolitan areas, so people could get from one to the other very easily. And two, because towards the end of World War II, we'd, we'd dropped a, a nuclear bomb or two on some cities in Japan. And, and he thought, if that happens to us, if some foreign country ever drops nuclear bombs in one of our cities, we want the people to be able to get out of there quick. So we have those roads. Well, they had roads too, all over the empire. Now, the, the, the ocean, or the Mediterranean Sea, would have been a, a, a nice way today with our ocean liners to transport the army or cargo. And they had boats back then, but they weren't real reliable. Paul himself, three times, had been shipwrecked. And there were times of the year where you couldn't even sail. So Rome built these roads. When my daughter was a sophomore in high school, no, she wasn't a sophomore, she was in high school, but uh, when she was in high school, she and I went to Portugal. And uh, we went to visit uh, five missionaries that had been interns in our church. And we're, we're driving someplace. Somebody, one of the missionaries is driving me someplace. And he mentioned that we just crossed a Roman ro uh, bridge. And I said, well, what's a Roman bridge? Well, he says, the Caesars build it. 
That was 2,000 years ago. We built these, this interstate 60 or 70 years ago. We're, we're, we're having to repair all these bridges. And here was this bridge. And I, I said, stop. I got out and I, I'm taking pictures. Thinking that I'm looking at some unique antique. They're all over. And here we were. We're over here. And they had these roads. Now, right here, northern Spain, they had some people that didn't cooperate. So they had, but, but they came through the Pyrenees Mountains here, and, and they had roads all the way to Rome and all the way through here. And, and Paul sometimes traveled on those roads. It was nice of the Romans to build those roads so that the gospel could easily spread. With those combination of those roads and the military, for 250 years, no outside force was able to succeed in attacking the Romans. And they were able to keep the locals happy. And that was, that was one of the things that was important to Pax Romana. Keep the locals happy. When, when Assyria or Babylon captured a, a, a country, like say when Babylon captured Judah... They hauled the people away. But that's not the way Rome did it. What Rome did was, you stay right there and pay the taxes, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of you. But keep the people happy. They would, they would take a ruler from their midst, and that person, and they went by different names, kings or proconsul or tetrarch, but you keep the people happy. That explains why Pilate would be willing to have Christ crucified when he knew Christ was not worthy of death. But <laughs> you got to keep this mob quiet. If word had got back to Rome that uh, the people weren't happy, Pilate loses his job and probably his life. Keep the people happy. Not only that, but these rulers, they would use a combination of fear and favor to keep things under control. They were pretty ruthless. You would, you would remember Herod the Great, and there's, there's three, three Herods that are written in the scripture. Herod the Great was the Herod that was ruling when Christ was born. And he was ruthless. One of the things he did, is, as you well know, he had all these boy babies at two years younger killed because he was trying to protect his position. Um, he, the people really didn't like these Herods, particularly Herod the Great. Now, he did things that they, they liked, they, like he built a temple for them, enlarged that, but in fact, he, he had a lot of building projects, like Caesarea, where there was no harbor, he built a harbor. He, he made this city huge, and he happened to name it Caesarea, after the Caesar, wanted to keep Caesar happy. 
But all those buildings and projects cost money. Where do you get the money? Taxes. He laid heavy, heavy taxes on the people. But they had to pay him because he had access to these, this army that would back him up. Herod Agrippa, who we saw today, actually did quite a bit better at maintaining the favor of the people. He, he participated in the Roman or the, the Jewish festivals, and publicly at least, he kept most of the, the rules and uh, looked for ways to keep the people happy by doing favors for them. One of the favors he did for the Jews was he killed James. And it made him happy. He said, wow, that worked. I'll get Peter. So he arrests Peter. But, but Herod's not stupid. This is during the Passover feast. And you don't, you don't want to be dealing with death during that feast. So what's he do? Puts him in prison. Peter had been in prison before, Acts chapter 5, and uh, the angel of the Lord opened the doors and sent him back to preach. Herod knew about that, so he didn't take any chances. Now, this is kind of overkill, but, but he, got, he had four squads of four guards, and they, 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 those squads would rotate. But, but here's Peter in jail, a guard on each side, chains. A guard at the door, a guard at the gate. Herod says, this guy's not getting away again. <laughs> well, you know what happened. Angel of the Lord shows up. Angel of the Lord shows up. Peter is asleep. Asleep? Let me ask you. How in the world? Peter, Peter knows that the next day he's going to be tried and probably executed. And he's asleep. Have you spent any sleepless nights? Something looming on your horizon? that you can't control. I've been there. Lay there tossing and turning, making plans, rebuilding my plans, refocusing the plans. Not Peter. He's sound asleep. Cards look, well, this, this is too easy. And they go to sleep, and they're sleeping soundly. The angel comes, wakes Peter. Well, sort of wakes him. He's kind of in a daze. I, I've had those kind of dreams where I'm glad to finally wake up because I've done some terrible thing in my dream and I'm going to go to jail for the rest of my life or something. And I'm so glad to wake up. Well, Peter, Peter's kind of in a fog and he leads him out of the prison and into the city. By the way, Herod had these 
massive gates built to lock people out. And as Peter and the angel approached the gates, they opened. It's, it's about God. They opened. And Peter's, Peter's awake. But how could he sleep? Let me suggest some things that Peter knew. Now, he knew he was in jail. He knew James had been executed. He knew he was going to be on trial the next day. But here's some things he knew. He knew that Jesus knew he was going to be executed, and he embraced it. And when Peter said, oh, Lord, that won't happen to you, that was a mistake. I've learned so much from my mistakes in life. I've learned more from my mistakes than anything else I've ever done. That's why I know so much. I've made so many mistakes. It, 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 Peter, Peter was publicly rebuked by Jesus. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not speaking the words of God. Peter didn't forget that. And he didn't forget that Christ embraced it. He also knew that uh, right now he was living in a lousy spot. He's chained in prison. And he looks around and, and, and it's dark and it's, there's rodents running around. He's sitting on a cold floor and he wished he was back in Joppa. Now, that was a lot better place, but it's not as good is the mansion that, that Jesus said he was preparing for him. This is temporary. That'll be eternal. On his way to the cross, some of his followers were with him and they're weeping. I mean, they're looking at their Savior and, and, and he's bloody and beaten and, and, and they're weeping and Jesus says, hey, I got this. Don't, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself. If they did this to me, the green tree, they'll do it to you. So Peter knew that what he was facing was exactly what Christ had gone through and what Christ said they would probably go through. And then he also remembered, uh, I'm not an old man yet. And Jesus had told him, Peter, you're going to be an old man. Now, he, rem he would remember that because, again, it was in one of those situations where, where Christ was, was exhorting him because he had denied him. And he said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter didn't forget that conversation. And he would have also remembered, hey, I, I'm going to be an old man. He also knew that he had been in prison before and God chose to release him. But the interesting thing is when you go back to Acts 5 and Peter's released from prison, the text says he rejoiced. He didn't rejoice that he got out of prison. What did he rejoice for? He rejoiced that he was counted worthy to suffer 
So Peter's in jail. He's thinking of these things. He says, I might as well get a night's rest. Don't know where I'll be tomorrow. And he falls asleep. Now, not only, not only does Peter find peace, the peace of God, but later on he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3 his theology of persecution. And he's writing to people who are being persecuted. They've been, they've been scattered. They've been dispersed because of persecution. And Peter's writing to them, and life's not going easy for them, and it's not going to get any better. And here's what he says. Don't be afraid. There are things to be afraid of and things not to be afraid of. This is one not to be afraid of. And don't be troubled. Don't be distracted. You're to to be representing Christ. Don't, Don't be distracted by this temporary problem you're facing. And remember, while the people who are over you are being mean, God will reward you. His friend Paul later wrote, the the joy that's coming, the rewards that are coming are greater than the problems you're facing. He said to them, honor Christ as Lord. Yes, you have to submit, you have to honor the the king and and the government you're under, But really, submit to God. Honor God. Peter, back in chapter 5 of Acts, said, when the Sanhedrin said, we'll let you out, but we want you to stop preaching. He said, I should obey God rather than man. Be ready to explain why you have hope. You see, And and the hope is not in the temporary. The hope is in the eternal. And while while these people were in the the immediate temporary were suffering, what is unseen, what is coming, is so much greater. And be ready to explain that hope. Be gentle. The people who are oppressing you are not being gentle. Don't Don't respond in that kind. And be respectful. He had said this back in chapter 2, that that they were to honor and submit to the government. Now think of it. Peter, multiple times, has been imprisoned by the government. He's, 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 He's going to die at the hands of the government. But his... Exhortation is submit to the government, honor the government, and be respectful, be gentle. Arm yourself with the attitude of Christ. In Hebrews, the author says, for uh, he, he despised Christ, despised the shame of the cross for the joy set before him He endured the cross. Arm yourself with that. And then in chapter 4, he says, remember, they have to face God. 
Right now, they're, they're kind of free agents. They're doing what they want. But that's not going to last. Now, I have a question for you. Of those nine exhortations, which would be the easiest for you to embrace? For me, it'd be the last one. <laughs> yeah, you're sticking it to me now, but you're going to face God. Your day will come. Which one would be easiest for you? Which one would be the hardest? I want you to write it down. You know, I, the notes you, you picked up today are different than normal. But cheer up. Craig will be back. He'll get it right. Which one would be the hardest? Once Peter realized that he'd been delivered, he went to where people would be praying. Wait a minute, Peter. It's three in the morning. What? This is not the normal time that people pray. In that culture, they would pray at the morning sacrifice. They would pray at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. And then they'd pray again at twilight at the evening sacrifice. That's the normal times for prayer. Let me ask you. Let's say that you said, you know, I think I'm going to get together with the people from Forest Hills and pray. When would, you, when, when would you show up? Maybe Wednesday night at 7 o'clock or maybe Saturday morning at 3 a.m. or maybe Sunday morning at 8.30? Probably not Saturday morning at 3 a.m. That's not a normal time that we get together to pray. Now, maybe there are people getting together here at 3 a.m. on Saturday morning, but they've not told me about it. But why? Why would Peter go to Mary's house? I can, no, the text doesn't say. But I can think of two reasons. One, maybe somebody had stopped by to see Peter during the day and said, hey, we got you covered. We're, we're going to be praying all night at Mary's house. Or it could be that when James was incarcerated, they had an all-night prayer time at Mary's house, and Peter was there. Now, that's speculation. I don't know if either of those are what went on, but I do know this. When Peter got to Mary's house, he was not surprised to find people there at three in the morning praying. Now a lot of times when I've heard people teaching this passage, they'll camp here on the fact that those believers who were spending all the time praying, were, were, they didn't believe that Peter would be at the door. 
they sort of upbraid those people for their lack of faith. Not Peter. Peter doesn't upbraid them and rebuke them. He tells them what God has done. And then he says, go tell the others, including the brother of Jesus, the James, the brother of Jesus, go tell him so they'll be encouraged. He doesn't say, go tell those slackers who didn't show up. He's talking about what God did. Meanwhile, back at the prison, can you imagine the consternation of those guards? They wake up, Peter's gone. They only have one prisoner to guard. They're unemployed. (laughs) They only got one prisoner and he's gone. I I can just see him. Why'd you fall asleep? You fell asleep too. You, you let him go. You let him go too. They knew they were in trouble. Herod was furious. He, put, he puts out people looking all over. Peter can't find him. You see, when, when Peter got done telling the, the, the brothers and sisters there at Mary's house that God had delivered him, It says he left for another place. Yeah, he had peace, but he's not stupid. He knew Herod would be looking for him, and he was. When Herod couldn't find him, he interrogated the guards. And then he had him executed. That that was standard operating procedure. We're going to see in a few weeks in Acts chapter 16 that uh, there was a jailer that was guarding Paul and Silas in his jail, and an earthquake hit, doors swung open, and when he realized the doors were open, he assumed everybody had escaped, and he was ready to take his life. Why? Because there's no excuse for prisoners escaping. It's a well-disciplined army. Prisoners are missing, you die. Herod goes back to Caesarea. No Peter. Frustrated. Luke uh, records another incident that took place when he got back there. Herod was angry, for some reason, with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they needed him to be happy with them because he provided food for them. So they asked for a meeting. At the meeting, uh, Herod comes with his royal robes on and got a speech prepared. And he starts into his oration. He no more than starts into it and the people give him a standing ovation. And they're shouting, Oh, you're not the voice of a man. You're the voice of God. And Herod just sucked up that flattery. Problem is, Herod forgot what I forgot on that first slide. Remember I said this was the people that we'll find in this chapter? He left one out. God. Well, he he knew how to keep Rome happy and he sort of knew how to keep the people he was ruling over happy. 
but he left God out of the equation. That, for him, was a fatal and probably eternal mistake. God is in charge, folks. And I'm glad. About 40 years ago, uh, I took my family to Washington, D.C., and we uh, toured, among other things, the FBI building. And there was a mural on the wall, and it, it depicted what the FBI had done to identify and capture two Russian spies. But as, as you got to the end of the mural, and as the guard was explaining it, they did all that work for naught because Jimmy Carter, President Carter, had exchanged those two spies for some Russian dissidents. And the way he told it, he was disgusted and all of us joined us in his disgust until, and I did too, until I realized that one of the dissidents was Georgie Vins. Georgie Vins was a Russian Baptist pastor. His daddy had been a Russian pastor, Baptist pastor, and his daddy had been executed. Georgie himself had been uh, in prison multiple times, and finally they just wanted to get rid of him, so they, they sent him to us in exchange for these prisoners. God used Georgie to mobilize the Western church to pray for Russian pastors by name and their families. Georgie had preached at our church just a couple months before. In fact, they had, he, had, he and his wife had dinner at our house and one of their daughters. So instead of being disgust, my disgust turned to rejoicing for who God is. You know, James was a godly man, a key leader, and he was executed. Peter was a godly man and a key leader, and he was released by God. When James was executed, immediately, he was in the presence of God. Peter had to wait a few years. God is in charge. As a benediction, let me read from the book of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.